Hey, everybody. I've got a little bit of housekeeping here before we get into the episode about Instagram and Theology Beer Camp. So I've been getting more active on Instagram, and I just want to let you guys know, in case you want to see me make some videos where I look directly into the camera, I'm sharing some stories and posts about basically all the topics that we cover on this show over at Instagram.com slash Dan Coke. That's C-O-K-E, and the link is in the show notes. Also, Theology Beer Camp is returning in 2024, October 17th through 19th. The theme is Return of the God Pods. That is a Lord of the Rings reference, which should surprise nobody. I will be there alongside Brian McLaren, Diana Butler-Bass, the New Evangelicals, Bible for Normal People, Tony and Josh from GGCH, of course, Trip Fuller and Homebrewed Christianity, and a whole grip of others. And you can use the promo code RETURNOFYHP, all one word, for $25 off your ticket. Prices go up starting June 1st. That link will be in the notes. I hope to see a bunch of you guys there in October. It was a serious highlight of last year for me. If you're listening to this podcast, you must recognize the value of asking questions. At Aramco, our questions help us engineer a better future. How can today's resources fuel our shared tomorrow? How can we deliver energy to a world that can't stop? How can we deliver one of the fuels of the future? How can we sow curiosity to harvest ingenuity? To learn more about how innovation drives us forward, visit aramco.com slash powered by how. My name is Dan Koch. Like many of you, I've been on a complicated faith journey for a number of years now. And while I tend to find myself on the progressive side of Christianity, my goal is not to make liberal converts. I want this show to be a resource for Christians to my right and to my left, as well as former Christians and non-religious folks, anyone who finds themselves asking difficult questions about God, science, prayer, fate, suffering, evangelism, and more. So many of us have been given bad answers to those good questions, often by people with pure intentions. I want to say that you have permission to take both Christianity and the modern world very seriously. And I hope to facilitate that by introducing you to people seeking God across the Christian spectrum, engaging hard questions in a multitude of ways. Thanks for listening. Just in time for Halloween, not on purpose, actually, the question of today's episode is, what exactly is the supernatural? Is it miracles, angels or demons, the resurrection? When God does something in the natural world, something that has effects in our physical world, is that the same thing as saying that God breaks the laws of physics? That is what I was more or less taught growing up, that the world is just going along on its merry way. God created it such that it can just self-perpetuate. And then occasionally, God intervenes, he breaks into all of that, and he does something that would otherwise be physically impossible, that is, not possible within the laws of physics as we understand them. But a while back, I was interviewing theologian Tom Ord. I think it was our episode about how he changed his mind on healing prayer. 
And in passing, he said something that stuck with me for months after. He said that at one point, he collapsed the distinction between natural and supernatural. In other words, he stopped thinking that natural events and supernatural events were different than each other, were like of a different sort. Perhaps, maybe, God is acting all the time, but God never breaks the laws of physics to act. Or anyway, that's kind of what I thought he meant, and I wanted to have a conversation with him just about this idea uh, and the various consequences that I see coming from this idea, partly because I think it's maybe time for me to collapse that distinction, and I want to think more clearly about what that would mean. So after he explains to me what he did actually mean with that phrase, we get into how that might apply to things like the resurrection of Jesus, the inspiration of scripture, the life to come, and more. So happy Halloween, and I hope you enjoy this conversation. So Tom, I want to start by sharing an anecdote. I was at a Switchfoot concert, and uh, John Foreman, the singer of Switchfoot, was speaking in between songs. And I got to say, he's a person I really respect. I interviewed him for Depolarize, my mostly former, more politics-oriented show. And I just, I really think he's the real deal. I look up to him a lot. But he said something, he said, you know, I've been thinking about what we're going through these days, and uh, he said this to the crowd. I think we've lost faith in the supernatural and what we need is to like regain that faith in the supernatural, to be surprised, to be surprised by God maybe is what he meant. And I remember thinking, I know what you're trying to say here, but I'm pretty sure that for me, (laughs) I'm moving the opposite direction so that I can keep up and strengthen my relationship with God. And it put me in mind of something that you said about six to eight months ago when we were recording our conversation for one of those early You Have Permission episodes about healing prayer and how your mind had changed. And you said you were telling your story. I asked you for kind of your spiritual narrative. And the thing that was most uh, interesting to me was you said at one point you collapsed the distinction between the natural and the supernatural. So you stopped looking for like God's action to be these special events and everything else is natural and does not involve God. And I have literally been thinking about that for six to eight months. <laughs> and <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> no, it's no, it's good. It, it, was a, it was like a seed being planted. And I'm trying to figure out if I need to make a similar move. Um, and then the two questions I have for myself and for that move are, one, like what does that move entail? And then two, how can I actually get to where my default thinking is like the new position because I do think it's really ingrained to me to to think in terms of God does supernatural things. The world I live in is natural and not supernatural. That's Mm -hmm. the line. So that's the setup. And I have not prepared a ton for today. Uh, I know you have. I appreciate that a little bit. We're just going to see where this goes because it's, this is as much a pastoral conversation for me personally as it is a public, you know, discussion of ideas for the audience, which I'm kind of excited about. So thank you for being willing to try this little experiment. Any opening thoughts? Well, 
Yeah, I do have an opening thought. Uh, I'm also a Switchfoot fan. Uh, I met met John one time. We didn't get into any deep uh, theological conversations, but I I think I own every Switchfoot album since the beginning and uh, listen to them at least once a week while I'm working out and really find his lyrics thoughtful. I can listen to them without much qualm at all. Yeah. I Which just, is rare yeah. for a lot of Christian e- songwriters, right? Exactly. Yes. Yeah. So when I hear you say that anecdote about John saying this on stage, I'm going to jump to a particular conclusion about what he meant that I might be totally wrong about. Cool. But I suspect what he means is that many people look at the world in which we live and only think of it in terms of natural causes, creation, creatures, humans, acting, and they don't have any real room for God, the divine, what he called the supernatural. I suspect that's what he had in mind, but I'm not sure. And I find this to be an interesting comment in light of my work in science and religion, because in the science and religion dialogue, there are a number of people who uh, want to think about existence solely in terms of the natural causes that are present in existence, whether those be human, creaturely, at the quantum level. This is sometimes called in the literature causal closure. The idea is that you give a full account of what happened, whether that happening be human or non-human, and you can give a full explanation if you appeal only to creaturely causes, no divine causes. And this worries some people, it excites other people, but I see a a link there between John Foreman saying, hey, we need to think about the supernatural in the world, and this debate in science and religion about whether or not we can give a full explanation of existence by natural causes alone. And what's interesting about that is what counts as a natural cause, right? Hmm. And our understanding of God is going to have a huge role in whether or not we consider those natural causes to be, God can be one of those causes uh, or not. I think there's, I want to, I want to motivate this with one other example also from uh, Christian songwriting. So I recently interviewed Dustin Kensrue, the singer of the band Thrice, and uh, one of their songs is called Image of the Invisible. And he went in our interview, he was talking about how at one point he basically felt like he needed to, he needed to, rest in Christianity, even his particular brand of it, right, that he had been given with all the problems, because on the other end was basically materialist nihilism. So the line in the song is, we're more than carbon and chemicals. We are the image of the invisible. It's a fantastic Mm -hmm. song. I don't think he would quite stand by that binary anymore. And I think that's what I'm kind of getting at is, I think I also used to thought, well, either we are the image of the invisible God. We have whatever God's stamp and and love implanted in us, or we're physical. Those are the two options. And what I think you're trying to get me to think about is, is there a third option or can we be physical in our current manifestation and have that be completely consistent with uh, Christian theology? And what are the sort of the benefits of getting rid of this binary? Do do you have anything to say about, that second example? Yeah, that's really interesting. I guess I would say one of the other complications in this conversation 
is not just between God and the world or the natural and the supernatural, but also between what we might call the physical material versus the mental or spiritual. And so there's a big question, and it's been around for a long time, really, about whether or not we can account for humans or any creature entirely in material kinds of or physical kinds of language. Is there really mentality? Is there really a spirit? And um, I've been reading last night, in fact, uh, a book by Keith Ward, what he, he calls a Christian philosophy, in which he's making a strong argument that we need to think in terms of spirit and mentality and something more than just the material. So you bringing up that example, I think, adds another layer to our discussion. Does it maybe complicate the discussion? Should we leave it out and just and just talk about uh, let's not worry about physicalism versus you know dualism or yeah. monism or whatever you know dual aspect monism. We'll leave that aside. Also, there you haven't heard it yet, but there is an episode coming that explores that a little bit more. Okay. Um, so let's leave let's leave that aside. I guess it's just it's connected insofar as it's connected in my mind. Maybe it doesn't need to be connected, and so we can tease these things apart. So. Let's just get – I want to understand what you mean when you say I collapsed the distinction between natural and supernatural. What do those words mean when you say that phrase? Excellent. Okay. So let me start with what I don't mean because I think that's the, the cool. worry that some people are going to have when they hear me saying this. What I don't mean is that there's no difference between God and creation. So I don't mean the idea that I don't embrace what philosophers called pantheism, which says that the uh, world is really divine. You and I are God. Uh, I'm not. I'm not embracing that at all. I'm making. I do think there is a God, and that God is not the same as the world. I think what I'm reacting strongly against is the idea that when we look at any particular thing that happens in the world, when we look at ourselves, when we look at worms and elephants and elections and whatever occurrence occurs, I think that we're not wise to say that particular event was either entirely caused by creatures, natural causes, or it was entirely caused by God, supernatural causes. In the history of science and theology, when people wanted to look at the world and say, you know, God did something here, they would say, well, that's a supernatural intervention, and God made it happen unilaterally, single-handedly. And uh, I have come to the place in my life where I actually don't believe anything, let me repeat, anything is entirely done by God alone. So when I say I'm collapsing the two, that's what I'm saying. Any event we look at cannot be fully explained either by creaturely causes alone or by divine cause alone. Okay, good. Let's go to the far ends of that continuum for examples and how you would break that down. So on the one hand, we could say, let's imagine a process that is entirely divorced from divine action. The wind blows a little longer at the Grand Canyon, and another rock falls, uh, and now, if we could, you know, this part of this segment now looks a different color. So, ordinarily, we would think that is not God, that just happens. Wind happens, the rock falls. How is that not completely no God involvement? 
Great question. I should say you and I think that, but there's a lot of Christians I know who think that God did all of that entirely. They're theological determinists. Mm. So every color, every wind blow is God doing it. I'm not in that camp. I'm more in your camp. Well, yeah. So let's, let me tell you what I'm operating on. I meant to do this earlier. My previous understanding that I was given growing up is that basically the world would work without God doing anything because God set it up to work. But then sometimes God intervenes and does things specially. But if he didn't, it would, you know, we would still keep living and eating and driving our cars and all that stuff. So that's what, that's kind of the thing that I am deconstructing here. Not necessarily a strict theological determinism. Gotcha. Yeah. I think that's a really common view, not only amongst Christians from the kind of backgrounds that you and I came from, but I think just among the general public. Sure. That, uh, you know, basically it's a it's a deism with occasional supernatural interruptions. Yep. That is, God kicked things off, whether or not you think it's 10,000 years ago or 13.7 billion years ago. God's such a good creator, things would be able to function well on their own. I mean, if they couldn't, then God must be a crappy creator. So if things go really well all on their own. God doesn't have to have any influence or fiddle. But occasionally, God steps in to do a miracle, some profound kind of action in the world. And those are the supernatural events. So so the Grand uh, Canyon. So I would, yeah. in, on that previous thinking, I would think, well, this is the kind of thing that just happens. God's not involved in this. There's just wind and rocks, and they do what they're going to do. Yeah. And I think that you can go a long way with that kind of thinking until you ask the question— what kind of overall theory should we give about the way God acts in the world? So this is called in the literature metaphysics. So what kind of metaphysical account are we going to give for the way things work in the world? And one of them might be everything works on its own unless God occasionally steps in. I'm leery of that for a number of reasons. Some of it comes from very traditional theology that said that not God not only creates the world, but sustains the world. Sustains so, the world, yeah. Yeah, so everything moment by moment is dependent upon God's action. So that's sort of a very traditional way of Christian way of looking at things. Another problem I have is that we begin to separate things from, I'll say, well, your rocks and wind is a nice example of inanimate objects that uh, seem to have good explanations without any appeal to divine action. But when we get into questions of healings or religious experiences, people quickly want to go to divine action for those, and, and if not erase natural causes, at least think they're secondary. And the problems that arise there, of course, are not only in terms of the sustaining issues, but also if God sometimes does miracles in some places for humans, then why doesn't God do miracles amongst nature? Why doesn't God stop that hurricane that kills those people? Why doesn't God step in and you know mess up some volcanic eruption so it doesn't waste on, etc.? So you begin to have questions about, well, if God does this, then why doesn't God do that? If you have a God who supernaturally intervenes sometimes while other times not. I mean, that's almost jumping ahead to sort of the motivations for yeah. the view. I'm still trying to get just my mind a little bit more around what the view actually is. So 
in the instance of the rocks and the Grand Canyon and the wind, how exactly do you think of that such that it's not divorced from God? I mean, is it simply the theological commitment that God sustains the universe and therefore God is in some way involved in every action or every uh, event? Yeah, I think so. Um, Probably I'm motivated theologically and metaphysically, my philosophy of science. If I just look out at the world and see the Grand Canyon and see these things functioning, I ask myself questions about what are the causes that made them happen. And like you, my first uh, answer is probably going to be, especially if I'm talking with a group of scientists, I'm going to talk about natural causes. If someone asked the bigger question of how did it get here, how does this all function, what's the underlying causal forces, then I might make theological appeals. And then let's – okay, so let's take an example on the far other end of the continuum, the kind of thing that I would have ordinarily thought this is a completely supernatural thing. Maybe you you choose because there's a million things we could choose from. But what would be – what's the kind of event that ordinarily we would think, well, this has zero or – almost zero natural causes involved. So uh, I'm on a Facebook discussion right now amongst some Christians, and one of the illustrations someone gave is that they were in an auto accident, they were thrown from their car, and no, according to them, you just can't explain why they weren't killed. There had to be some sort of supernatural intervention to prevent them from dying that day. Okay. So how I would have thought about that would be, yeah. So God intervened in some way. And, uh, you know, if I wanted to get granular, I would say, well, his brain ought to have pressed against the casing of his skull such that it would have ceased its functioning or whatever, but God cushioned it in some way. It does kind of break down when you start trying to describe it. But how would you think of it instead in this kind of both and rather than either or thing? I would say that in any event, including this particular auto accident where the person didn't get hurt and they thought they should have, that there were natural causes involved and God was also active. God, in my view, can't control all those natural causes, but uh, also God wasn't devoid or absent from the situation. There may have been an instance in which God was able to persuade or lure agents involved, but it also might just be plain old luck. I don't have any problem with saying sometimes people get lucky and it's not God who somehow interrupted things. I have no problem believing in luck when I'm playing Monopoly. Then why do I have problems believing in luck when it comes to auto accidents? So this gets at something that I wanted to talk about in our patron exclusive episode, but we didn't have time for. This is one of the most fruitful changes in the way that I think about God in the last few years of my life, is going from thinking about God as the sort of great plan writer of some Mm. sort, and, and my job is to divine that plan in some way, or at least to submit to that plan if I'm not trying to divine it, versus increasingly thinking of God as I call it the God of possibilities, basically. Nice, nice. And this is pretty process theology-ish and, and open and relational, certainly. The idea that maybe rather than uh, dictate things, God is constantly presenting opportunities and in every moment to every being, to the extent that that being has agency. Of course, we have more agency than a dog, which has more agency than a rock, whatever. 
And so thinking of God's interaction with creatures and other created material in that way, does that give us a kind of a way of understanding this? The rocks that are in the Grand Canyon don't really have agency. There's sort of, if you think that the indeterminacy is at the quantum level, for instance, you would say those atoms, they do have quantum indeterminacy, but none of it results in really novel possibilities other than the rock is still, it's going to fall. Whereas you get all the way to a person and there's so many connections, there's so much space, there's a lot more agency. And so there are more possibilities. Am I making sense at all? Yes, you are. Yeah. Uh, So I would say like this, uh, the more complex an agent or thing becomes, the greater amount of possibilities it could choose or could affect it. So there's a wider range. Yeah. Um, One of the ways I've been thinking about this that might be helpful is the really common illustration in scripture about God as a parent. Now, I think some people, when they imagine God as the parent, they think of us as two-week-olds. And a two-week-old has some possibilities, but is largely manipulated or largely, that's too strong a word, they're they're largely uh, influenced. They're They're corralled. Corral. There we go. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And so you don't think of the two week old as, you know, making these complex choices. And you think of the parent as pretty much dominating what their life is going to be like. I mean, there's limitations. If you're a, a parent of a two week old who has an ear infection, you realize just how little power you really have in fixing what's going on. But generally speaking, I think some people think of God like that. And when we hear metaphor, we hear this adoption language, for instance, in Scripture, we think of the adopting parent getting a two-week-old. Right. In actuality, the New Testament is written in a time in which adoptions were often of teenagers and twenty-somethings. And adopting a teenager and a 20-something, you're not corralling them in the same kind of way. You're having to figure out as a parent how to have the best influence to steer them toward possibilities that you think will be helpful for them and for their world. Now, that view of God is not a God who is uh, the kind of God that, uh, well, we'll go back to the corralling thing. It's a God who is working with agents with real freedom, real possibilities, lots of indeterminacy. And I think it takes a much wiser individual to work well with a complex creature with lots of possibilities than it does if we think God has lots of corralling power and we really have very little agency. One thing I want to do early on, this is a little bit of inside baseball from time that I have spent at these theological conferences with you and friends of ours. So... Your basic view of God is called essential kenosis, the idea that – and we, we got into this on that patron episode. We're not, we won't get too in the weeds here, but the idea that basically God's nature is such that God cannot be coercive, cannot be controlling in God's love towards creatures, towards us. Um, right. And that's just baked into the nature of God as being logically – loving is the, is the first logical – quality that God has, right? Right. So everything else is filtered through God's love and God's loving nature. Now, you, in this kind of community of open and relational theologian folks, people are really intrigued by that. It's a novel possibility. It it generates really interesting sort of discussions and sessions at these conferences. 
the I think where people find your view weakest is on miracles. Now I don't. I'm not. My point is not to you know give you a hard time about that. <laughs> I, but I I don't want our conversation here to be dependent on your particular understanding of how miracles work. So mm-hmm. I'm wondering if you could briefly, given what we've talked about, describe what you think is going on in a quote miracle. But maybe also give how people that you agree with on ninety five percent of other stuff might talk about miracles. So I think it might be good for me to begin by saying I do believe that miracles occur, but I don't believe that miracles require God single-handedly doing something in our lives or in the world, what many people call supernatural intervention. Yeah. So then the question that people ask, well, said, how can you then explain what occurred? And then I say, well, I want to rely upon this general framework, which says that God not only always acts in every particular moment, but in that acting offers possibilities for creatures to respond, or if the creatures are inanimate objects, these possibilities are relevant for the particular circumstances that are present in the situation. So then I say, if we have that in mind, then we can not only understand why sometimes miracles do occur, that is, God acts, presents possibilities, creatures respond either at the smallest levels or the more complex levels. We can also account for why there are so few miracles, that is, why we sometimes want God to intervene, we might say, to fix something and it doesn't happen. We don't have to blame God for not doing what we think should be done in the situation. Or, or you know, we don't have to say this is a part of some meticulous blueprint that God foreordained from the beginning of the world, or that God is punishing us. All those kinds of standard answers you get when miracles don't occur when you want them. But to be clear, miracle in this sense does not mean the breaking of the laws of physics, right? That's right. Not the laws of nature, all those kinds of things. And one uh, way that one thing that helps with that is understanding that the laws of physics are not completely determined in a Newtonian sense, but are in fact probabilistically determined in a quantum sense, right? So rare things can happen without breaking the laws of physics in a yeah, way nice. that yeah. Nicely put, yeah. If you're going to take what seems to be the dominant view among uh, in physics today, that there's indeterminacy even at the smallest levels of reality, then you don't have to say there are these laws that mechanistically require things to always work in a particular way. You can say, no, there's, there's some kind of flexibility built in, even at the smallest level. Now, Along with that flexibility, there's lots of regularity as well. So it's not like everything is random and, you know. So in that kind of scenario, then I can say everything from, you know, healing of a disease to the resurrection of Jesus, departing the Red Sea, I can be on board with all of those without having to say that God periodically intervenes, interrupts the causal forces of nature to bring about some kind of effect. Now, my critics, my critics hear that and they say, "Okay, I can buy a lot of that, especially the part where there's, you know, animate objects, maybe even at the cellular level and there's organs that are cooperating. But man alive, how are you going to account for Jesus walking on water? Now, that's a weird one. Or even parting the Red Sea. In those cases, they say, it's hard to imagine how Jesus can walk on water if God can't in some way 
control these water molecules to make a platform strong enough for Jesus and apparently Peter for a, a moment to be able to walk on them. And they make a good point. But that matters only to the extent that you want to say that Jesus walking on water is a historical event, right? I mean, yes. not, not all Christians are going to be committed to saying that, for instance. Exactly. So I like to put it this way. My theory of miracles works really well for healings, exorcisms, any kind of miraculous event that occurred that involves animate objects, persons, creatures, entities. My theory has a harder time with inanimate, or what uh, sometimes biblical scholars call nature miracles. It can account for some of them, but others it has a harder time with. And so then I say, do I really have to make literal sense out of Jesus taking five loaves and two fish and breaking them and feeding 5,000 or 3,000, depending on the account you read? Is that really what's going on there? Or is this really a, a pedagogical kind of moment in which it's saying Jesus is the one who supplies our needs or something like that? Yeah, that's interesting. Okay, so just, I guess what matters here then is there's your particular view of miracles, then there's a more, a general kind of collapsing of the supernatural, natural distinction that you and many of your colleagues would share. And so I guess I just want to make sure that if we're choosing between the Tom Ord view or the, a bunch of other open and relational theists view, that we understand what the distinction is. So take a Philip Clayton or, you know, pick anybody who's kind of in your general school of thought, but would not agree on the particular mechanism of the miracle. What does that view look like? And how similar is it on this natural, supernatural distinction breakdown axis? I think Philip would be pretty much where I'm at. So let me take uh, someone like John Sanders, because John and I have had some scholarly interactions. He has criticized my view of miracles, and and your listeners can find his criticisms and my response on the internet if they Google just a little bit. I'll find it and put it in the show notes. Yeah. Okay, great. So John, I think, is on board with a lot of what I'm proposing, but he's saying, well, what about these kind of, can, can God be a physical cause in the universe? Can we really account for all of these miracles and have God not doing something physically involved. And I have some answers to this. I, you know, from my perspective, I think I, I can account for this. But I think he represents the worry that some people have that just saying God acts uh, persuasively God, in an uncontrolling way just won't quite account for some of the things we think are genuine miracles. And so for them, they'll probably want to say something like, on this question of collapsing the natural and supernatural, that the natural and supernatural 99% of the time work nicely together and they act as the way I describe them acting 100% of the time. 99% of the time, these two work in tandem, but occasionally we have to appeal to some irregularity, whether you call it an intervention yeah. or you call it you know something else, imposition, you have to leave room for that in your scheme. But as I understand it, the motivation for your view, and this is how Phil Clayton would also talk about it, is that if you leave open that 1% or whatever percentage it is, then it seems that God's on the hook for all the other things God ought to do, as far as we can tell, like preventing the Holocaust or any That's other right. instance of genuine evil or gratuitous evil 
in the philosophical literature. And so that's, that's the motivation, right? That's right. Yeah. You don't have, if you're 99%, you don't have a, a totally consistent view. I think Philip and I uh, share, at least we differ on this really interesting question of whether or not God creates the world out of nothing. Philip right. thinks God does. And then after that is 100% never interventionist, but always influential. I think God is never interventionist, always influential, and God is always creating. So there wasn't a, a creation out of nothing. But that's getting into all kinds of weeds that people probably don't care about. It's it's a very interesting question, but it's kind of its own topic. Yeah, so that's right. let's talk about some of the other benefits here then. like it, So when you said, at this point in my journey, I realized I needed to collapse the distinction between natural and supernatural. What was that doing for you? What why was that helpful? What was that answering? Well, it was at the time giving me a way to talk about events in the world related to my own religious experience and the religious experiences of others that I just couldn't say could totally be explained by mechanistic causes. So, you know, there's some people who, for instance, will study religious experiences and they'll bracket out all kinds of claims about God's action, and they'll try to describe them entirely in terms of natural causes. Okay. And um, I looked at that and I thought, boy, I'm skeptical that that can really happen. Okay, this is interesting. So <laughs> you're coming from the opposite end. Basically, yeah. <laughs> you're coming from a mechanistic view of the world, and you needed to move into, let's get rid of this false binary because it seems like there's more going on than just mechanistic physical causes on each other, on each other, on each other as time goes on. I'm coming from sort of a mechanistic world infused with supernaturalism at uh, appropriate or convenient times for my worldview. And I'm feeling like that's not really working anymore. And it, the convenience of it is, is really is showing me what's not working right? Yeah. And yeah, so we, we came from opposite angles to this spot, but it's the same in both instances. We're attacking this false binary of it's either entirely natural or it's a supernatural event. Yeah. Yeah. If, if I recall correctly in the conversation we were having uh, uh, in the past, I was telling a little bit about my own story of going from a time in which I was all in on the supernatural healing. And I was praying left and right, right, anointing people, casting out demons, you know, just doing the whole nine yards, thinking that I lived in a world of spiritual battles and I had a role to play in, in this fight. And then that just didn't seem to make sense to me because of the results I was getting and because what I saw other people were doing. And so my response to that was to go mechanistic was to say, yeah. you know, okay, we've got a God who had to create the thing, but now has a hands-off view, so I'm a deist, everything runs by mechanism. And so it was then going from that perspective to this collapse of the natural supernatural, where I said, you know, maybe the most plausible way to think about this is to say that every event has both divine and creaturely causes. On the one hand, what collapsing gives us is we're able to take really gruesome evils and we don't have to say, uh, well, God did them because God does everything, nor do we have to say, 
God could have prevented them, but God didn't prevent them when right. it seems like God should have prevented them. So that's what we get on the one hand. On the other hand, we get a more robust account of causation of all kinds of activities, right? So if I am a prayerful person and sometimes I feel like in the middle of prayer, an idea pops into my head that I didn't anticipate, or I'm doing Lectio Divina and I go over a certain verse or a phrase and I have that fluttering of the heart uh, that Ignatius describes and I think, oh, maybe uh, God's trying to tell me something about this right now. We don't have to take those experiences and reduce them to, well, it must just be indigestion. I think it's C.S. Lewis yeah, calls it, yeah. right? <laughs> yeah. So it's like a lot of this podcast. It is a way of saying I can take spiritual experiences seriously, but I'm not getting stuck in the camp of God being responsible for a morally problematic world. Is that right? That's right, yeah. And what's interesting, too, using your indigestion situation, is you can say that it could be that indigestion played a role. <laughs> I mean, I, yeah. I remember uh, several, but 20 years ago, I was involved in this thing called Walk to Emmaus. I don't know if you ever heard of it, but it's... Well, I've uh, heard of the original one with uh, okay. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> Jesus and co. This is a situation in which you go away for, I think it's four days, and you listen to lots of speakers and you do lots of activities and and uh, people write you, you know, notes in appreciation. And it's like a massive spiritual retreat. And the last night after you've had too little sleep, you've been emotionally charged, you come and there's a foot washing ceremony and your family shows up. And I mean, the kinds of experiences people were having were out of this world in terms of uh, they were saying God was showing them this and that. And it was, it was just supercharged. And I remember sitting there at that moment thinking, you know, how much of this is caused by lack of sleep, incredible emotional experiences, social interactions that are out of the ordinary, massive encouragements, kind of an emotional, how much of it is that? And how much of this is the Holy Spirit? Now, some people wanted to say was entirely the Holy Spirit. Other people might say, you know what, you can explain this entirely by emotions run wild. My scheme can say, you know, it could be more of one than the other. <laughs> I'm not going to deny that, but I don't have to reduce it to either one or the other. Neither does God need to have no intentions for the time, even That's if right. it's 60% lack of sleep. So this is... Yeah, it's unfortunate timing. Five days from now, my interview with Sarah Lane Ritchie is going up um, and her work on what she calls spiritual technologies. And in particular, you know, she's doing work on psychedelic drugs, but also she's t talking about all the things you're mentioning, fasting, you know, these emotional experiences that are created to make us open to the stirrings of God within us. And yeah. she says, we shouldn't be so worried about that. We're not coercing ourselves or others. We're doing what people have always done and will always do forever. They will try and put themselves in a position to have the kind of experience that they want for their lives, basically, which can include their faith. But it's, this, it's not even that different from saying, like, I'm not going to get into a room with 20 single attractive females and have six drinks because <laughs> I know what that might lead to 
and my you know my goals in my life don't accord with something like that you know yep yeah i think so by the way i like a lot of i like what sarah's doing she's well, I won't go into Sarah. Let me bring up a really controversial, well, might not be controversial. At least it was controversial for me. Uh, let me bring up speaking in tongues. That okay. was a, a major part of my life some time ago. I engaged in glossolalia, not only in my private prayer life, but in uh, public forums and churches. That particular experience produced a lot of positive emotions in me. And I think that had some validity that was good, at least to a certain extent. But I got to the place in my life where I just thought, I don't know if I really wanted to continue doing this. It wasn't like I thought it was, you know, wrong. I just kind of came to a place where I said, this is a practice that might have been appropriate for me at one time. But, you know, I, I think there's partly natural causes involved, but I also think God might be part of it. But it's just, it's not that important to me anymore. So I haven't spoken in tongues for two decades or more, maybe even three. Now, some people might explain speaking in tongues entirely in naturalistic terms, because you really do have to decide you're going to let your tongue go wild. It has There's some free will decisions involved there. Other people, of course, have tried to explain it entirely in divine terms, that God takes over, which I think makes no sense. But I bring this up here because it could be that some practices that we intentionally engage in kind of run their course in our lives. And we say, you know what? The kind of person I want to be and the life I want to live, I think I want to do something else. Not that what I did was wrong or bad, but I might even attribute it to God as leading me in a new direction. And I think that's quite appropriate, and we don't have to dismiss the things that used to be helpful for us. Yeah, I, that's really interesting. I, I think that a lot of what's going on when people are worried to make this move is that they feel like God is being demoted in some way. Yeah. God, and I think that this is goes really wide psychologically in, ter- in all kinds of deconstruction and whatnot, but God is sort of believed to have all these massive powers and you get to a point where, okay, so God really wasn't doing all that stuff. And you can't think of it without comparing it to your old view and the emotional change of being in relationship with a God like that versus a God like this. Do you want to say anything about this idea of demotion? Yeah, I think it does feel to many people like God is getting demoted. <laughs> and I get that because they previously had a one particular view of God, and now I and others are suggesting a different view. And because, at least in my case, I'm saying God can't control us, and people thought God could, that sounds like less power than before. And what I like to say to people like that is that uh, at least for me, my overall goal is to try to have a plausible account that's informed by scripture, by science, by my experiences, by others' experiences, by the tradition, etc., to try to make sense of not only what I think God has done, but what God hasn't done in the world. And uh, as you know, for me, the questions of evil have played a big role. And so uh, when I know of people who've been, you know, sexually abused, I want to say, how can I account for that if God is a loving God? But in this particular case, there's another thing that we've kind of talked indirectly about, but let me bring it up directly. And that has to do with 
the role of the discipline of science and the role of the discipline of theology. If you have a view that says God can supernaturally and does sometimes supernaturally intervene to do some kind of occurrence, that would mean that whatever occurrence you think God supernaturally did has no, has no scientific basis. No, science has no way to uh, describe it and have, tell us something true about what happened. Because you'd have to say, God alone made that happen. And if you're, you think the uh, theology has no room in the sciences, that science can't talk about God, then you would say, you know what, that's just supernatural. Science can't tell us anything true about what happened. Uh, This was a worry that Phil Clayton expressed to me in our interview that you know, you you might be able to get around this if you say God only acts very occasionally. But if you think God acts any more than very, very occasionally, you basically can't do science anymore because the most important things that ever happen in the world, you will never be able to know anything about them empirically. Right. But it's also true on the other side of things. And this is the one that probably John Foreman had a little worry about at the beginning. And that is of our conversation And that is, if you think you can give a full explanation of any event in the world using only natural causes, usually only science, then you are allowing no room for God there. And that's going to then eventually, at least in my case, conflict with the way I think God acts in the world, sustaining it, creating it, involved in it, etc. And that's necessary for me to account for the kind of intuitions I have about love, about my meaning in life, my significance, values, etc. So, yeah, yeah, there seems to be two motivations for positing God, broadly speaking, in my own mind. The first is that a universe exists at all. I understand a concept that it just would exist, but I don't really understand it. And then a sub a subcategory of that is the anthropic principle, like how well-tuned the universe is for life to develop versus the multiverse, which mm-hmm. um, is, I think, a, a sort of a flimsy counter because it's basically the um, – it's the atheist – what's Anselm's argument? Uh, a, a perfect being Un- must exist if we can think yeah. of one. yeah. It's the ontological argument for uh, for atheists that a universe must exist because we can think of it. <laughs> and, you know, I, it might be true, and I don't know, but it also might be true in a theistic sense that there's a multiverse. So, But then the other one is spiritual experience, right? So it's the remarkable similarity of experiences among people who have mystical encounters with the divine across time and across religious cultures, basically. It's the agreement on love. It's the agreement on human rights and then all that kind of stuff. And then it's, of course, personal prayer experiences and, and the like. Those to me are the two motivators for wanting to have God in the sort of causal nexus. Yeah, I, I could probably add some more, but I think those are the two main ones. But my my basic point is to say to those who are kind of worried that I've diminished God by collapsing the natural and the supernatural, I would want to say that this way of thinking about God not only makes more sense to me, but means that we need both theology and science if we're going to have a fullest possible truth explanation for any event in the world. And that that seems to me helpful on a number of levels. So one thing you mentioned a second ago is a God of less power. And this is something that comes up a lot with open and relational theists, 
and anybody who's in this kind of non-coercive model of God's nature. But my reaction to that is, okay, do you think that God created the universe? And if someone says yes, then I will say, do you think that God needs to have more power than whatever power it took to create the universe? And oh. that, you know what I mean? And then I don't, I'm not sure what more power there, you know, like that's a lot of power. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I'm not sure why that wouldn't be enough power For, just from a purely sort of like neat God needs to have enough power. I understand there are like moral problems where like, and that, so I have another question after this about the eschaton. That's like power for some purpose. But just talking about, well, that seems like a neutered God. Well, how neutered? I mean, yeah, created yeah. the universe. Is that not, is that neutered? Yeah, for me, it's, it's hard for me to get my head around more or less power because mm. it, how do you qualify that? How do you quantify that? How do you talk about that? Um, for me, it's easier to talk about what God can and can't do. Now, that sounds like more or less power, but it's a little more specific. It's asking what particular activities is it possible for the God who created the universe to do? And here, that's where I, you know, I want to go and make claims about what God's love does. And that because God is first and foremost love, God can't sin, God can't do evil. And eventually I get around to saying God can't control others. But for me, that's a more fruitful way to approach this than saying more or less power. One benefit of becoming a patron of this show is exclusive episodes each month. This last week, I spoke with Zach Bolin, primary songwriter and lead singer of the band Citizens. Their new record, Fear, is really, really good and rides some interesting lines between Christian and secular music, in air quotes, of course. It is raw and honest, and a lot of the lyrics focus around fear, doubt, uncertainty. We talk about those lyrics, the kind of middle genre of Christian indie music that they find themselves in, and fallout from the implosion of Mars Hill Church in Seattle, including the Mars Hill record label, which was releasing Citizens Records. Uh, you're hearing their song, Fear, right now. Great song. But here are some clips from my chat with Zach. It's not me necessarily sharing a specific story. Yeah, right. But it is me speaking personally to just the ways in which that I've seen fear completely paralyze me. And because of that fear, it just instills tremendous doubt, both um, in God, but also in myself. And, and so a friend used this picture that I thought was really interesting as he was listening to the song. He kind of, he's, he's like, I just almost imagine he, he had pitched this music video idea of, you know, what if it was from the inside of this egg and you're the bird, this, you know, like the camera is just like, you're seeing this, you start to this black screen and you're just like pecking your way through this, through this egg and li little bits of light start to come through. And then you finally break through and it's like, all right, are you going to fly <laughs> or are you going to just stay, stay right back here? And some of that I think is like, I think it's really true. It's like you get to a certain point where you sort of like break through 
the things that like, that's what this, there was a lot of revelation happening. And so you, you start realizing a lot of these things about yourself, about culture, about the ways that it's affecting lots of different people, decisions, the way that fear is affecting people. And then you're sort of like, all right, what do I do with it? And for me, I got to the place where it's like, man, I just, I want to be like, I want to be like that bird. <laughs> I just want to fly. I just want to soar. I just want to be released of these things yeah. and, and be caught up more in, I just don't want to believe that fear is that strong. That one's an interesting one because, all right, so we're talking about how maybe we were raised as young people and our understanding of faith was a bit narrow. Whereas this song is sort of addressing a lot of what I think is been sort of like uh theologies that have been really pressed on people through like christian music (laughs) oh interesting yeah um that's what this song is kind of getting at a lot is um but yeah you know it is it's written and i don't necessarily i don't think i I don't regret it you know yeah but i I think i as a writer i would just say i i might have found a more eloquent way to uh to to explain something like that. I think that the reason it's like that, Dan, is because you're right. In the reformed world, <laughs> it's very much like you need to say it exactly like this and yeah. there is no room. A, a great example, there is a song out there that uses the word condescending in a in a church song. Yeah, yeah, I, I know what you're talking about, and but I can't think of what it's I really called. I I um I don't know if they'd listen to this podcast or not, but and I know one of the guys. I think they're he's uh, two of the guys actually. They're really great guys. This So this is less a criticism of them, but more just, I think, within that world, I think it's easy, and re- within the neo-reform world, it's like, I'm going to use this word like This technical theological term. And five, but, six, seven years ago, I would have been like, that's awesome. But yeah. now, what I would say is, you shouldn't have used that word, and instead write seven songs about that, unpacking mm-hmm. that concept. Unpacking it. Yeah, because also because people tend to think that neo-reformed white dudes are pretty condescending. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of opening yourself uh, up to, it's, it's, a, it's no, a big, you're condescending. Yeah, you tee yourself up for <laughs> yeah, some bad, bad stuff. So even if you don't become a patron, you should listen to this record, which again is called Fear by the band Citizens. It's streaming everywhere. Uh, I really enjoy it. I listen to it a lot. They did not pay me. Uh, to have Zach on here or talk about this record, I'm just telling you, I like it. It's interesting. I think it's doing an interesting thing. Um, but if you do want to enjoy these exclusive episodes, if you want to join the patron-only Facebook group, or if you just think that this podcast is valuable and you want to help me get through grad school with limited student loans, please head to patreon.com slash dancoke, or you have permissionpod.com and click become a patron starts at just five bucks a month and there are some scholarships available for those whose finances will not even allow that much right now you can email me about that you have permission podcast at gmail.com okay back to the episode but i'm gonna play a little bit more of that citizen song fear before we do that So 
I want to get to some specific consequences slash worries for this view. But I think before we do that, we should summarize it again to have it fresh in our minds. So can you just describe for us again what this account looks for? So we've collapsed the distinction between natural and supernatural. And what we have now is a combination of causes for every single event. There are sort of multiple actors at play, we might say, physical, God, in whatever way God acts. Can you just phrase yes, it again? Yeah, I think you've, you've done it well. For every event that occurs in the world, there are both divine and creaturely causes. Now, this is helpful. We didn't really say this, but let me quickly add this in. We also need to say that just because God was a cause in the event, it doesn't mean that God wanted the event to happen. So the idea is that God is necessary to sustain existence and to uh, make things happen. But creatures can use their causal power in ways that disappoint, frustrate, go against God's loving purpose. But the general point then is that everything that occurs has both creaturely and divine causation that account for it. Okay. A bunch of worries slash consequences here. I'm going to give a table of contents (laughs) (laughs) This is what we're going to talk through. We're going to talk through the resurrection of Jesus. We're going to talk about the eschaton, the new heavens and the new earth. We're going to talk about angels, demons, etc. And then we're going to talk about the special revelation of Scripture. Basically, Scripture as inspired in some way that is maybe different than, I don't know, just a book or something like that. Or any any other record of people praying or something like that. So let's start with the resurrection of Jesus. I think that the general understanding that people have is that, well, God can literally do anything that's not logically impossible. So when God decided that Jesus would rise from the dead, that's just, there's no problem there. Because of course, God can do that. God can do anything. That's not going to fly on this new version. So how do you think about this issue? Yeah, so let me just make one caveat. It's not going to fly on my version that God single-handedly resurrects Jesus, but it's going to fly on John Sanders' version. Right. Uh, because, you know, John, uh, maybe another good example here would be John Polkinghorne, since John Polkinghorne makes an uh, exception for the uh, resurrection. Actually, can uh, we, before we get to your view, let's talk about that, because that's actually something I'm really interested in. And, and Trip Fuller, our friend, has also talked about how why this is not an issue for him in it. I think he's maybe doing a similar move that Polkinghorne does where the resurrection is just sort of like the first action that reveals what the future is like, but that's not supernatural insofar as it is just what would happen anytime the second person of the Trinity is killed or something like that. I don't totally understand this contention. Maybe in explaining my view, I should begin by making a claim that might surprise some people. Nowhere in the Bible does it say that God's resurrecting Jesus was a unilaterally coercive action. In other words, nowhere does it say God resurrected Jesus single-handedly and Jesus didn't cooperate, his body didn't cooperate, whatever. It just says, and God raised Jesus from the dead. So, Most people, 99% of people I know who believe in the resurrection, come to the biblical text 
with the assumption God has the kind of power to single-handedly resurrect Jesus, and then read those statements and just assume that verifies their assumptions. But let me just start by saying the Bible doesn't explicitly confirm that assumption. Maybe it's true, maybe it's not. But we can't appeal to the Bible to say, yep, the Bible endorses my particular view of divine action on this on this issue. Yeah. So, second move. What would it entail if Jesus cooperated in some way with the resurrection? Well, this is going to get us quickly to questions that you say you have another episode on and what it means <laughs> to be human, you know, whether or not we have a, a mind, a soul, and, you know, all those kinds of things. Let's go with a very traditional view, which says that humans have minds and they have bodies. Either you're a mind-body dualist or you're someone like me, you're a dual aspect monist, but you think that the mind or soul, I collapse those two, that's who you are. And then you also, your body is comprised of cells, organisms, or organs, etc. In that kind of scenario, if Jesus' mind continues to exist after the death of his body, which is a very common view, surely Jesus' mind would want to say yes to God's resurrecting. So they would have, you'd have, if insofar as Jesus is a creature in this particular moment, you'd have creaturely and divine causes acting for this resurrection to happen. Then when we look at the the body of Jesus, we have some really interesting questions to ask ourselves. One of them is, can bodies respond? I think it's pretty clear they can, at least up to a certain point. Bodies that have been decomposed for months and years, and we have a harder time thinking of them responding as a whole. But, you know, Jesus is dead for, what, 36 hours or so before his resurrection? If we go from Friday night to early Sunday morning, maybe a little longer. So if we're just looking at the science of it, how long has this body been dead? It's not so hard to imagine. We know people have drowned, for instance, and been dead for long periods of time, and they're able to be revived. So, you know, I admit this is uh, thinking in some new ways, but it's not out of the bounds of possibility. And that, then if, that more recent, that particular example you're giving there, though, sounds a bit more like the revivified corpse version yeah. of the resurrection, which... My understanding is most theologians want to kind of steer away from that, that there's something different going on. A revivified corpse is Lazarus, and that that's yeah. not the same thing that's happening with Jesus, where, you know, walking through walls of people not recognizing him, but also eating and drinking and all that stuff. Yeah, yeah. So sometimes the language a lot of theologians will use is they want to say, I want to distinguish between a resurrection and a resuscitation. Yeah. And so, you know, Lazarus or the person who's drowned and been dead for a day but gets, you know, comes back to life, they're, they're, uh, that's a resuscitation, not a resurrection. So then the question becomes, okay, if we want to use that kind of language and we say there's something special about this Jesus, then let's ask questions about the accounts of the appearance of this body that's resurrected. And that's when we get really weird. Things get weird. This is where you have a body that can go through walls. This is a, a Jesus who can walk for miles with two guys on the road to Emmaus, and they don't even recognize him until he breaks bread. Right. Um, you got all kinds of strange you know, Jesus standing next to the tomb, and they don't. They think he's a gardener. I mean, there's all kinds of weird things we have to account for for this resurrected Jesus that lead us away. It seems to me to thinking that this is actually just the same body that now has been 
has a mind back in it and it's up and functioning. Right. And there's also an an added uh, discernment difficulty layer of figuring out how sort of historically accurate you think that these various accounts are and how much they're trying to be pedagogical. As you said, they're trying to say something about Jesus for Christians for in this, for the sake of their worship practices and all, and then to the extent that those two overlap, you know, what do you think that is? So it gets, it all gets hairy really quick, of course, but what we're trying, but we're trying to figure out here is, could there be some kind of resurrection of Jesus with the natural supernatural collapsed, right? Yes, and I want to say, yes, there can, insofar as Jesus' mind and body cooperates. And I think it's it's easy for me to think about Jesus' mind cooperating. It's harder to think about the body, but it's possible. And then the next question goes to what we've just been talking about. Then, Well, then what kind of body is it that comes out of the grave, and is it anything like what was in the grave? And then things get really messy quickly. Then the question becomes, okay, Paul seems to make a big deal out of this resurrection being the first fruits, and we get to also participate in this, and yet he wants to talk about us having spiritual bodies. So what's going on there? It doesn't seem like he has in mind that when Tom Orr dies and a hundred years later, somehow all those same molecules at the moment of his death is going to be collected— There's something spiritual going on here. And so I also want to believe that I am resurrected. I continue to have subjective experience beyond my bodily death. So maybe this is just a long way of saying I think we can account for resurrections that involve cooperation between creatures and God's power that doesn't require a supernatural imposition intervention that God single-handedly does all the work. So this is really connected to the worry about the eschaton, right? The new heavens and the new earth. Because I think that the, at least the cleanest way of understanding the resurrection in this way is to say, it's just the first instance of what's coming next. Mm -hmm. And so it's not really an aberration in the logical sense. Um, And that lines up really well with Paul's language about first fruits um, Mm -hmm. and us having spiritual bodies, whatever that means. So whatever kind of body Jesus had, and this is N.T. Wright's view, this is what he thinks the text shows as well. So it's it's got a lot of support, but it's connected. So the the resurrection concern is connected to the eschaton concern. Now, one thing we can say pretty pretty confidently about this universe is that given enough time, it will have a heat death. It well, will either it will either have a heat death or it, if in fact the universe reaches some point after which it contracts again, then it will implode, right? Or, or whatever. So either way, uh, that means the differentiation of matter that we currently have, wherein I can have a bunch of neurons that give rise to my mind, that won't be the case. It will be back to a singularity or it will be so cold that nothing moves and does anything. So that's unfortunate. <laughs> picture in in a certain sense for the universe. And yet as Christians, we hope for a new heavens and a new earth. We hope for a situation where a lion can lay down with a lamb and not tear it to shreds where tears can be wiped away. So how does God accomplish that in this collapsed natural supernatural schema? 
God accomplishes that the same way God accomplishes salvation in the here and now. <laughs> that would be my general answer. That is through a cooperative venture. I think what becomes, it makes it a little bit easier if we distinguish between sentient and non-sentient or animate and non-animate creatures. So I think a lot of people are fine with the idea that dogs go to heaven, maybe worms do too, uh, but it's they have a harder time thinking how dirt is going to be redeemed. How does dirt make it into the afterlife if there is such a thing? And if you make that distinction, then you can have dirt coming and going and new worlds become, coming after a heat death or you know a big bang or a big... Uh, a big collapse or whatever. And then you have to say, okay, well, then what about the creatures that do have the capacity for continued subjective experience, be they worms, dogs, or humans? What happens to them? Well, in my view, they do continue to have experience beyond the death of their bodies. And here I lean toward a kind of a spiritual or soulish existence Again, this would go to go into nitty-gritty details. This would get back to my dual-aspect monism stuff, but I'm not going to go there for the moment. Okay. <laughs> but the point would be that God never gives up. God ne- continues to call, and creatures with the capacity to respond are always given the opportunity in this life and the next And the redemption of all creation becomes a real possibility because God's love is everlasting. So in the scheme that I propose that collapses this natural, supernatural distinction, you don't have a God who could guarantee through coercion the redemption of all things because that would require the kind of supernatural intervention or omnipotence that I think is problematic for many reasons. But you have the genuine hope because God never gives up, and by never I mean everlastingly never gives up, and creatures can cooperate with God, and one would think that they would sort of eventually see the the wisdom in living uh, in response to love. So one way that people sometimes talk about the next world, though, is that it can't be this one physically, it has to be a different one, but that God in being the type of, I don't know, entity or power force that can create universes can sort of connect in some way our conscious experience here with our conscious experience there. But that, now you could say that's cooperative insofar as we have to agree to it or something in, but it's hard to understand how this works. Like, I can agree to things while my brain is running and while it has oxygen and blood pumping to it. I don't know how I'll be able to agree when it's not that way. And it seems sort of like I'm going to lights are going to go out for me and God, if my conscious experience is still going, it's still going somewhere else or in some other kind of modality that I don't have any control over getting it there. Is that, is getting it there that God has to do, is that a supernatural physics breaking coercion? Well, this might surprise you, but I think there's some insights we can gain from near death experiences. Okay. So, in the near death experiences, it's very common for those who describe having them to have a sensation of leaving their body. 
Now, if this is the case, it seems like they can have subjective experience even though they're not directly connected to their brains. And they seem to be going somewhere. Where that exactly is is described in various ways, toward the light, toward heaven, toward whatever. Sometimes it depends on your religious tradition, on the kind of descriptive words you use of where you're going. So the question you seem to be asking is, okay, what's the power that gets you from one place to another? And here again, I'm not sure that we have to say that God's power is single-handed. We can talk about our cooperation. We can talk about the kind of causal forces a spirit would have upon another spirit that doesn't involve bodily impact. I admit that coming up with the precise language is going to be difficult. But if I just, uh, you know, kind of go back to the philosophical language of God being a necessary cause and our having responsiveness, it still seems to work for that kind of scenario. Yeah, I suppose I'm totally spitballing here. It might be such that maybe through dimensionality, maybe through some other thing we don't really understand, the kind of emergent experiences, the emergent properties of subjective experience that we have as human beings that that is already causally related to whatever future experience we have. Mm, I like like that. God Mm. may create a universe such that while we are biologically alive in this four-dimensional space, time being the fourth dimensional, fourth dimension, that when this ends, there's already a causal link with what comes next. And uh, that's baked in, so to speak, to the universe itself. I think if that's true, you still have some issue of... I mean, I guess I don't really know if the afterlife needs to be, properly speaking, eternal in terms of like an infinite uh, infinite consecutive moments, which is how yeah, we tend to think of it. I'm with you. I actually think that there are consecutive moments in the afterlife, but whether or not there's actually an unlimited number of those moments for my subjective experience – I'm not committed to that idea. I can see reasons why one would decide, you know, hey, I had a good run. <laughs> right. <laughs> I'm checking out. Um, well, and to get to get a little bit less analytic philosophy and a, a bit more esoteric, it might be that – I found myself thinking this a few times recently. It might be that the afterlife experience has a bit more of a Eastern shade to it, you know, of like a – dissolving into completely into God in a way that is not obliterating of self, but really, I don't know, like I'm really just kind of out over my skis here. But uh, if it's something like that, that it's a bit more steady state, it's a little bit less consecutive. I mean, I don't know. It might even be that it just feels that way, but also it's something, I mean, it's so far beyond our ability to comprehend that it's kind of hard to talk about. Yeah. I have a little bit of hard time with dissolving, but I might say something like this. If I am so aligned with God's calls of love moment by moment, and that becomes such a habitual part of who I am, then my alignment with God would be such that while I might not disappear into nothingness or dissolve, it would be a hard time distinguishing God's will and my will because I'm constantly saying yes to God. Yeah. So basically, given enough time, or whatever time means in mm-hmm. whatever the analog of time is in whatever comes after this temporal existence, the persistent lure of God leads people to eventual alignment with God. 
And if yeah. you're in alignment with God, then that is basically heaven. Yeah. Yep. I like that. I like that. And I do think that like, you know, as I've, as my, this is a good segue into the scripture question, but as my, basically my confidence in the ability of just average Christians to sort of divine from scripture and from tradition or even from theological rigorous thought, what exactly heaven is like. I just have very little confidence in that, partly because of, you know, losing inerrancy and and just Mm -hmm. kind of like thinking a bit more about psychology and and how tempered by our experience, like all our images are that we can come, come up with. I think that like we need quite a bit more intellectual humility basically about the afterlife, that it's it's just not very reasonable to say we know a lot of things about it. Yeah, I agree with you. So that leads to this, uh, maybe our final topic here. We, we may or may not get to angels and demons, but I really want to talk about special revelation of scripture. I have been having trouble personally thinking about the Bible as being uh, special revelation. So this is using, um, is this like Protestant language of uh, general revelation and special revelation? Is that what... No, where it comes from? Catholics. Catholics, Catholics too. Okay. Use it too, yeah. So general revelation being basically what we can learn, being out in the world, our conscience. I think they would now include science, what we can discover through science. General revelation. This is stuff that people have access to. Special revelation. That comes through the text for Protestants. For Catholics, it would also come through church magisterium, church teaching over the years, and the authority of popes and, and other bishops. I'm having a hard time thinking of the Bible as particularly special, special revelation. I'm not having a hard time thinking of it as a record of Jews and Christians in the earlier years of their time. Like I I have no problem thinking of it as like, Hey, this is the record we have of the Israelites and look Mm -hmm. at all this stuff they went through and all this crazy stuff that they realized. And I'm also okay with saying God taught it to them. Don't get me wrong. And Mm -hmm. for the new Testament, here are these accounts this is the closest thing we've got to Jesus of Nazareth, and our whole religion is based on Jesus of Nazareth. So this is what we've got, and it's obviously not trying to present a unified front on every detail, but like it's pointing to the referent of the Gospels is the man, the person, the, the God-man around which Christianity is based, and therefore the Gospels are important. But in terms of the method of getting scripture written or for anybody who's an inerrantist or an infallibilist, there's got to be some layer in the temporal process from first oral tradition or first thought in biblical writer's head to canonization. Somewhere there, God ensures that there are no errors, either no errors at all or no errors around salvation and the Christian life or, or something like that. I'm having a hard time with that thinking that that happened because I don't see evidence of a layer in the process where God makes sure there are no errors. Right. And I'm wondering if this has anything to do with the natural supernatural distinction collapsing. That was a long introduction, but I wanted to, I wanted to really motivate it. It does has has everything to do with that. In my view, uh, I don't believe in an, in, in an inerrant Bible. I think the scriptures are inspired by God, but are always inspired through creatures. 
And so there is a collapse in the sense that the Bible and the revelation we find in nature has both creaturely and divine aspects. So sometimes I get insights while hiking in Idaho that I think are profound, in fact, more profound than some biblical passages I read. But overall, what helps me on this is to kind of put this big word revelation over the top and then as subcategories put special and general and say the Bible and nature differ in degree and not kind. Okay. So that's a philosophical, to let your listeners know, that's a philosophical kind of turn of phrase, which says that they have something in common. They're both inspired. They both have divine action. They both have creaturely action. Both kinds of causation are there. But sometimes scripture gives us greater insight, gives us clear understanding of God's intentions, God's motivations, God's actions, etc., And this helps me not only in terms of justifying why I think some passages of Scripture are more important than others related to Jesus and things, but also why I can look at some passages of Scripture and say, you know what, I think the writers simply got it wrong there. They misunderstand what God was up to. That's not giving us a clear picture of who God is. And vice versa, I can look at a beautiful thing in nature or some kind of encounter I have with an animal and believe that this tells me something really important about God without thinking that everything in nature is of equal value. Um, And so that at least is the way I try to come to grips with the special importance of the Bible without negating what we call general revelation or thinking that uh, somehow the Bible is inerrant in some way. Okay. So that's pretty helpful. I'm wondering, I want to dig a little deeper here. So if the biblical writings, just like every other thing, every other event in the world, there are both divine causes and creaturely causes. The writer of the, may they dash their, you know, dash their heads against the rocks imprecatory Psalm. There is a part of that writer, be it David or whomever it was, that is uh, a bigot and afraid and uh, wanting revenge. Um, mm-hmm. There's also a part of that writer that recognizes God's almightiness and and uh, is calling that out in God, is sort of praising God for mm-hmm. God's ability to do that in his mind. Also, similarly, when I decide to do the chores I told my wife I would do as I begin washing the dishes – uh, there is God's lure to keep my word, which is ever mm-hmm. present. And there's also my own, I have done the dishes enough times that there are enough neural pathways that I could do the dishes. You know, and there's other creaturely things like I know what the word dishes means, all, all these preconditions, right? What is it? So, okay, great. Then it sounds like I'm saying all of human experience is inspired by God all the time. And we're all sort of responding in the way we can or choose to, what is it about scripture that makes it especially inspired more than just any interaction, any decision, any story anyone tells, any film anyone makes that has any sort of moral or any other kind of import? Uh, That's a great question. So I think to begin, I would want to say that 
I agree that all of life is inspired by God. One can believe that without thinking that all of life gives the same clarity about who God is. Interesting. Because I said earlier, we can cooperate well or poorly with God. Uh, just because God's a necessary cause in every occurrence doesn't mean that that occurrence reflects well what God wanted. So we can say that about Scripture and about you washing the dishes. So I guess part of me wants to go to my my own church experience. There are people and occurrences in my church experience that have been profoundly revelatory to me in terms of who I think God is that didn't have anything directly to do with the Bible. You know, I came up in a tradition in which often the case that someone would sing a solo on Sunday morning before the sermon. And sometimes I would get so moved by that solo, emotionally, but also intellectually, I'd be motivated to do, to live a life of love, that it would far and away be more important to me in terms of God's revelation that morning than whatever passage the Bible of the Bible the pastor picked. Totally. So there are lots of ways in which God can re- be revealed in profound ways. Can I throw one in there, too, that's along those yeah. lines? Attending yeah. Catholic Mass at the main cathedral in downtown Seattle and having, you know, see, having the Eucharist offered by a 60-year-old Vietnamese woman, four foot eight. Interesting. Uh, that is like, that's an experience. That's a concrete uh, manifestation of the diversity of the kingdom of God. And that just her being 60 and Vietnamese might be more powerful than whatever the Eucharist is doing, depending on what you think it's, effect, you know, it's effects are, or even mm-hmm. my own sort of contriteness in the moment. Right. But it's, it's another cause but it's a it's a Godward cause. It's a gospel yep. cause. Yeah, I like that. I like that. The second thing I want to say is more complex and more difficult. And this is the question of by what criteria do we say some things are more revelatory than others? In other words, you know, you used the instance of bashing the baby's heads against the rocks. Uh, you seem to be using that as an instance in which maybe that's not what God wanted them to do. I certainly would say God didn't want them to do that. Yeah, I picked a, a rough passage of Scripture on purpose. Yeah, yeah, that was a good choice, I think, to illustrate what I want to say next. And that is, you and I are making assumptions that God is the kind of God who likes babies' heads bashed against the rocks. Now, on what basis are we assuming that God is, just to use a general term, God is a God of love and not a God of baby bashing? Um, What criteria do we choose that from? Now, I would want to say my primary criteria is Scripture itself, because I think the overall drift of Scripture points to a God who's against bashing babies' heads. But I'd also say I think the world is a better place when you and I love each other instead of bash each other's heads. So I'd have these other kinds of appeals also that aren't necessarily directly come from the Bible. Although, again, I think the Bible as an overall document supports that view. So what I'm trying to say then is as we think about the big questions of revelation, not only general and special revelation, but uh, the kinds of questions of how God acts in revealing, we're already going to be motivated to certain kinds of conclusions based upon these assumptions that we bring, oftentimes unconscious to the text. 
I try as best I can to be upfront about those motivations and those assumptions, but I realize I can't be totally because I don't even know all of them. But that's how I kind of begin to approach the kind of thorny questions you have about uh, revelation. So that makes me think of one of the reasons that I like your overall approach is that it, this is so, it's so hard to talk about because it's so big, but basically it sounds more like the way things appear to go in the world. Take an instance, uh, you know, let's go back to, am I going to do the dishes like I said I would? There are, it's so complex, right? Was I born into a society where men are willing to do chores or one where no men do any chores? Was I, uh, you know, have I made decisions in the past that make me likely to stick to my word this time? Or have I not? And this is the first time I'm trying to do the dishes and I don't have the neural pathways built up for it and I'm unlikely to actually succeed. Like the first time I try not to do heroin, I'm probably still going to do heroin. You know, it takes building up new pathways to to be able to resist the call of the opium molecule, right? Um, There's all this stuff. There's my age. There's what my parents modeled or didn't model. There's just an infinite, almost an infinite number of factors going into every moment of every day for every creature all the time. And that's what I like about it. That accords with what it seems like the world is to say that's also how we would describe it at a sort of spiritual level or at a, in terms of God's activity. God is the cause or the set of causes luring us toward greater love, justice, kindness, etc. Uh, the fruit of the spirit, basically. So any, anything to, to add to that? Yeah, I think that's a good way to put it, that the view that I'm proposing, even though sometimes I get caught up in lots of sophisticated language and tied up in the weeds, overall, it fits better with the way we already live our lives than at least any alternative view that I know. So a lot of people go to seminary or Bible college and they learn about the canonization process. And for a lot of people, it causes them a real problem with their faith (laughs) because they have had this old natural supernatural distinction operative. And they've expected that when they learn about the canonization process, that what they will find is that it was supernaturally guided. Yeah, yeah. And what they find instead is there's all these other books and they didn't agree at this council and then they didn't agree at this council and political, political, political. Yeah, politics. <laughs> and, and then uh, the Ethiopian church split off and they have this other book or, you know, whatever. But there's also as part of that canonization process, there's the proof in the pudding. So what we always learn about is, well, they had these rules. I think this is how we prefer to think about it. They were, you know, the real apostles wrote them and they were really close and they had good eyewitness stuff. And if they didn't, then they were excluded. I'm sure that was part of what they talked about. Although subsequent historic work has shown that a lot of them were probably not written by the people that they say they're written by, which I don't have a problem with. But this is the part that's important. The ones that made it in are the ones that worked in these church settings, in the early church, right? Like they are the ones that produced fruit. They are the ones that when people read or listened to them prayerfully, had the Holy Spirit stirring in them. I mean, that's got to be a part of it. And maybe we shouldn't be so afraid of that part of the canonization process because that's just what it's always like 
anyway all the time with yeah. anything that has sort of spiritual content. Yeah, I like that. I mean, if I was a, a pragmatic philosopher, which I'm drawn towards some of pragma- pragmatism, I would say, uh, you know, this canon has really worked because the ideas on it are better than the alternative ideas. But as soon as I say that, I want to be quick to say there's some rotten ideas in there, too. <laughs> sure, sure. Uh, so, uh, well, sometimes... I think what it does is it erases the the – so there's the part in Revelation that says no more words should be added to this book or whatever. And people interpret that as to be the Bible. And, and yeah. that can be – that's a way to sort of shut down conversation and to yeah. say Bible says it. I, be- I believe it. That sells it, right? There, that has its own problems, of course, which uh, – 10 or more episodes of the show are about, but like, you know what I mean? Like it opens it up in a realistic way. I think when you just acknowledge that, yeah, that is what's happening. And what I'm trying to be cured of is the feeling of letdown from thinking Mm -hmm. more naturalistically. I'm I'm using that in the, in the um, colloquial sense here, there of just like, just thinking more organically about this stuff and less rigid, categories here's what god's doing here's what god's not doing this is just happening whatever that even i don't even know how to think of just happening without thinking about god if i believe god created the world by the way but yeah anyway that's the way we as we've been saying that's the way we have often been taught to think i <laughs> i don't know i don't know if i have anything else to say i just am still struggling with this i'm still i'm trying to like come to a new way of thinking about it that doesn't feel like a constant letdown. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so let's pretend like I'm a therapist and you're on the couch or I'm on the couch and you're a therapist and uh, talk a little bit about what might motivate us to feel this letdown. I suspect that if you're like me, this letdown is in part based upon my deep desire to want to have a secure place of life, a place that I can, a foundation from which I can take on all my big questions. And if I was honest, I would love to have some sort of deductive logic that hammered out the right answer after I, I, I approach them. 100%. Maybe what you and I have to try to do is to say, you know, part of the reason we f- might feel let down is because we realize we don't have that kind of foundation. Now, it doesn't mean we have no good reasons that it's all extreme relativism, right. but there's some hard work we have to do. And even after we've done it, we still can't be certain we got the right thing. And so we got to continue to do it. <laughs> yeah. As I've been fond of saying recently, it's discernment all the way down. That doesn't mean uh-huh. you don't know anything. That's beautiful. I love that. But yeah. it's there, you. There are a lot of times in my life where I have noticed, usually after the fact, that I've wanted to sidestep the hard work of learning and discernment, and yeah. I've wanted to go. Well, other people have to do that work. Philosophers they have to really do that work. But I actually just have direct access to the truth through these sources, <laughs> and I can save myself the work. <laughs> yeah, I love it. I yeah. have definitely found myself. Uh, in that space. And there is, there is no, there are no magic beans. You know, you just, you do have to discern. You have to use the tools you're given. You're never going to know why you were given exactly the tools you were given. But one thing we can say is there are lives that move toward Christ, toward love, uh, toward justice. And there are lives that don't. And of course there's every instance in between. And that's not nearly 
as psychologically sticky of a thing or rewarding of a concept as here's the straight dope and you are special because <laughs> you know it. Yeah, exactly. Well, and I think also to your audience who might hear this and say, again, that the alternative to absolute certainty is extreme relativism or, you know, just throw everything right. out. Uh, we're better off if we don't have to try to do any of this discernment all the way down. Uh, no, that doesn't work either. At least I hasn't seen it to work in my life and the people I know. Uh, this is kind of just part of what it means to try to live authentic love and justice-filled lives that I love your phrase it's discernment all the way down all the in every moment at all times and uh, you can get closer to the truth but that's not the same as saying there is no truth or that you have all the truth Tom thank you so much for this kind of mind-bending conversation here it's uh, been fun <sighs> it's felt a little bit like therapy like work <laughs> uh, <laughs> But this is stuff that is important, man. And I, I know I have to keep working through this stuff um, anecdotally in my own life. And I can't imagine there not being a lot of other people who are going to find this helpful. Oh, I hope so. I mean, it, it helps me to, to talk it through with you as well. So thanks. Thank you to Laura Kondaragian for editing my conversation with Tom. In the show notes, I've got a link to Tom's website, which has his books and talks and a bunch of other stuff on there, and a link to that Citizens Record Fear uh, Spotify link. And of course, you know, join the Patreon if you'd like. It's how you get bonus episodes, exclusive episodes for patrons only twice a month. And it's how you become a part of the You Have Permission Facebook group, which is going off these days and is really fun uh please email me let me know what's going on what you're thinking about if this was helpful or not you have permission podcast at gmail.com uh yeah and we'll see you guys next week